I'm a programmer. He's a programmer. You're all programmers. We're all whatever. And we're designing the future of whatever. And we can't get the fucking conference call to work. <laughs> Someone's computer is always broken when we have our engineering calls. It's hilarious. Hey, it's Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. I'm Dave. Welcome back for another Hang in the Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. And special thanks, as always, to our backers who help us out a little bit every month to keep this thing going. If you want to join in over there and throw us as little as a buck an episode to help keep this thing going. Now I have to say it a third time, so it seems intentional. Keep Keep this thing going. Keep this thing going. Keep it rolling. If you want to help, go to support.zengineeringpodcast.com or uh, click in the link that I think is is automatically placed in the description these days, which I appreciate because it means I don't have to do it as a producer. So we got a guest this week. That third voice you heard is Dave McCarty. He's a uh, friend, adventurer, climber, engineer. And like the the funny thing is when you say adventurer, climber, that kind of stuff, I think people are like, eh, you know, and we were talking about this shit earlier, like before we started recording and the deeper we got into the stories about stuff, it was like, oh yeah, that time I climbed El Capitan, I was like, oh, okay, so legitimate, not like I live in a city and there's a gym and I do some climbing. Um, but uh, Jones, do you want to kick off with talking about how you know, how you know Dave? Because you guys go way back. We're old men these days if you look at the length of our friendship we've been buddies since uh since sophomore year of college maybe the end of freshman year uh half our lives is another way to look half at it. our lives wow <laughs> wow that's amazing yeah we went to college together in nashville vanderbilt and uh and we've we've done some good adventuring some good some good partying and some uh some just good engineering conversations which I always appreciate, and and you know you you miss that when you spend four years in college only interacting mostly with engineers, and then you leave, and we're uh, we're few and far between. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the the adventure side? Like, what do you, what's you know how did sure. you how did you end up doing that? It sounds like you're already doing it in college because you guys were telling me about you taking Brian climbing, which to me is a hilarious just and you know. Well, so that didn't happen until after college, okay. actually. Uh, I was not a rock climber in college. I wish I was. I should have started younger. Um, I started when I was in grad school. I certainly had a healthy appreciation for getting outdoors, uh, backpacking, and various activities when I was in college. But um, yeah, it wasn't until my, I guess, early 20s that I started climbing and... Um, doing various other adventures. Brian has mentioned a cave that he would like to talk about. That was a, that was sort of a random one-off adventure. That was a ton of fun. Um, Why were you so strong in college if you weren't climbing? I, I guess I realize now that you say that, you that you weren't climbing strong, not like yeah, a good yeah, dude. McCarty's, you're like a, you're like, you're probably a little taller than average. Uh, kind of look like, like a standard healthy fit guy, but you could just, pin anyone i knew in like five seconds in college well i mean i (laughs) 
I think my my college friend group has maybe built me up more <laughs> mythical than than I actually was. But uh, I mean, I I grew up playing sports. I wrestled for a short period and didn't stick with it. I, I didn't like wrestling seriously, but I I was naturally a decent wrestler. I uh, played football in high school, and then once I realized that. No one in the SEC wanted me to play football for their team. I switched to playing rugby in college. Uh, and rugby, I, I miss playing that sport. I, I, that's one of my favorite sports I've ever played. It was a ton of fun. Rugby rugby is an amazing sport to watch. I have a great picture of you. Uh, what is that? Uh, wait, is, is it, it the one where I, I, would, I basically got totally <laughs> laid yeah. out? <laughs> it's, not a, it's not particularly clear. So it's more flattering, more flattering but it's means. you're no, just getting was, wrecked. <laughs> I, I think it. I think it was maybe a a poor pass. So I'll try to blame it on my teammate. I think it was maybe a high pass that I went up for, and yeah, I mean somebody just wrecked me. And, and in the picture, I think my at least one of my legs is like well above my head. Um, yeah, I, I remember that picture. It's nice action. I'm glad shot. you're okay from that. Good picture, rough moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I Jones, I appreciate that your your question is like <laughs> your your question about college was your your notion of fitness and where it fits into <laughs> one's life, or at least where it fit at that point in your life, is so is is such that you're like you didn't you didn't do an activity like how were you in good shape? Well, because one can't just work out <laughs> like one has to do things. well college was a was a funny time because we had a lot of friends i think that needed to be pinned down <laughs> which I, 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 I suppose a lot of people can probably could probably claim that but uh mccarty you never drank in college so you were our uh our buddy who would graciously still spend time with us when we were complete morons uh, but also like would save the day sometimes, you know, you'd like pin someone when they're about to do something really dangerous or you'd grab someone when they're about to fall off of something. Occasionally I needed to be the enforcer. <laughs> Wait, you didn't drink, but you still took place and took, took part in follow the leader. <laughs> well, and, and in rugby, which is the perhaps the <laughs> more interesting contract. I feel like now we have to talk about follow the leader, which will get us to our like third episode in the row of being able to give a shout out to Chris, Chris Powell, Powell <laughs> one of the originators, one of the brain children. This for sure feels like we're just running a like a like a concentrated campaign to get this one person to care about our <laughs> podcast who already does. I don't think he needs help. <laughs> you. So, yeah, I mean, so, so Chris Powell, first of all, was one of the uh, one of the guys that needed to be pinned <laughs> down more than more than anybody. I, I, I think I spent a large percentage of my college time pinning down sitting on Powell's Chris chest. Powell. <laughs> there was Brian, I don't know if you remember this, but there was one time where uh, he and I were wrestling for fun, not because he necessarily needed to be pinned down, but uh I thought it was you even that was in the room and, and started giving me handicaps. So the first was like only use my yep. right arm, then only use my left arm. And then uh, the the finale was I, I pinned Powell with only one arm and one leg. So I was hopping on one foot and managed to get a hold of him. Which is, uh, and, if uh, you if you know Powell, this will add to your mythical abilities because Powell's pretty, pretty... <laughs> 
strong and and wiry and quick. Yeah, he's wild. And uh, I couldn't. I can't pin Pal. Scrappy. Pal's. Sure. Pal's. Uh, well, yeah, he, he was a little smaller in college too. I, I definitely had you know a good thirty pounds on him at least. So. So, engineering. Let's talk about that. When we started talking about engineering, we you know I, I was talking about my interest in. Well, you you mentioned building stuff, and I was immediately talking about how I watch ridiculous like home improvement videos, even though I don't own a home to improve. And, <laughs> One and day. you were talking about remodeling your house. Uh, but that in an engineering capacity, like it's the first time you've ever worked with wood. So you want to talk a little bit first about what you do, what, you know, like professionally, sure. the engineering side of what you work on? Sure. So I'm a structural engineer and typically the way it works is we get hired by architects who have this vision of what they want their building to look like. And sometimes their building in their head looks kind of normal and sometimes it looks rather outrageous. And our job is to sort of figure it out, figure out a way to make that work. Um, <clears throat> typically, I'm working on commercial projects that are steel, concrete, uh, occasionally CMU, which is a concrete masonry unit. It's like what you know is a cinder block. Um, very occasionally wood for like a multifamily apartment building. Uh, but structural engineers typically hate those kind of projects, at least in my experience. So I try to avoid those. So, I mean, very, very different than a residential home, which is uh, throw a bunch of two by fours at it and it should stand up without a problem. So that, that, that kind of gets to, I think the distinction between uh, it's it's funny in in our space and and then given Brian's transition from engineering mechanical engineering into software engineering, but like in my world of working with software, I frequently am asking programmers like, do you want me to call you a programmer or a developer or an engineer or a coder? Or, you know, and in software, they're sort of all interchangeable. Like I've never, I've not bumped into anyone who really gave me a distinct answer. And in the world of building stuff, like there is, there is a, there really is a difference. There, there really is a difference. In, in the world of building stuff, there is a licensed structural engineer who's going to put his or her stamp on a set of drawings and claim responsibility for that building. Uh, there's also going to be a handful, well, more than a handful. There's a ton of different people involved in a building. And so, you know, for, imagine a typical four-story office building. There's going to be a structural engineer, but there's also going to be a civil engineer, a mechanical engineer, electrical, plumbing, et cetera. Um, I certainly like to think that structural engineers are maybe <laughs> higher on the list of importance. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure others would argue differently, but, uh, you know, if the plumbing malfunctions, probably everyone's going to survive. So importance from a, uh, um, is everyone going to die in a, in a fiery disaster? Right. The thing that I always think is fascinating in the space of mechanical and structural and just, you know, real world, real world versus software engineering in the, in the space of real world engineering there's a notion of, uh, I think Brian and I've talked about this in passing with some other things, but like, you know, you have, uh, there are standards for things 
right? So if somebody's building a house, there there's a housing code, which is literally like, here are the laws for how you have to do things to build a house that is, quote, up to code, which I feel like is a, is a term that people know. That's right. Uh, the code? That's developed by the engineers. So like people going and doing math and going, okay, here's this threshold. And if this, if this set of rules is not adhered to, your house might fall down. And I don't know that people appreciate the fact that because of those rules, your house doesn't fall down. And then they have this, this sort of reaction sometimes where they're like, well, why does this person need to be involved in this part? And it's like, because the building we're building is not there. It's not a, it's, this is a unique, like a bridge is, every bridge is a unique problem. You can't just, there's a subset of standards, but then past that, it's like, okay, well now we have to apply these things to this weird context so the bridge doesn't fall down. It, it it's it's funny because it exists in software, right? We have like email, but it's kind of like if if you if you build an email client that doesn't adhere to the standards for how email should behave, like your email just doesn't get delivered. It's it's not too big a deal. Um, if you fail to adhere to the standards building a house, like the roof. <laughs> yeah, what's in. the what's the <laughs> difference? Or where's the where's like the the line? And I imagine there's probably a little bit of a gray area. But what's the line between like an architect and a structural engineer? Um, cause I know I would have, I long before I knew what a structural engineer was, I would have totally kind of thrown those two things together. Right. So architects also require licensing and, uh, architect is going to stamp their set of drawings as well. Um, but an architect is focused on obviously the aesthetics of the building, but there's a lot of other building code issues that they have to be aware of and tackle. I mean, things like um, egress paths. So, you know, you can't create a building where somebody is going to be working in an office that's in a corner of the building and for them to leave in a fire, their path is like go all the way across the building to the opposite corner, down one floor, and then back across to some other, you know, exit like there's there's distances um that have to be calculated so that that's just kind of one facet of what they do but there's also uh fire protection a ton of coordination between all the different disciplines so for example if i'm the structural engineer and i say hey you know these are the beams that we've designed and they're going to be a certain depth okay well now the mechanical guys have a certain amount of room to work with that's below our beams but above the ceiling and that's where they're going to run all their duct work so the architect is doing all this work to coordinate these different trades and try to you know come up with a product that makes their client happy which obviously the, the end client is the building owner now when you talk about residential stuff residential is totally different because there's a separate code that's just called the residential building code. And the easiest way I can think to describe the difference is the, the residential building code is almost like a recipe that just says, okay, you put in, you know, this amount of X and this amount of Y and you put it together like this. And as long as you follow these rules, you're going to have a building that works. You don't need a licensed structural engineer. You don't need a licensed architect. You don't need any other licensed engineers. You follow the residential building code and it works. So any, any builder uh, can, I mean, anybody basically 
Although I guess that actually depends. That that may differ by state. Uh, so, so like North Carolina, for yeah. example, you can, I could build my own house on my own property without being a licensed contractor. There are some states where you have to be a licensed contractor even to do any kind of work whatsoever. But regardless, you still are not requiring an engineer for these projects unless you're doing something that's outside of the scope of the residential code. So going back to my analogy where it's a recipe and you you follow these rules and and you come up with your product, um, the building code that's used for non-residential commercial, institutional, whatever other kind of building, uh, instead of a recipe, it's more like a performance requirement. So it tells you, uh, you know, using the same analogy, it's like, okay, you need to create a meal that's going to feed 500 people and it needs, you know, 1000 calories per meal and it needs <laughs> to taste really good and yada, yada, yada. So it's like that, but it's, you uh, you know, it, it's hundreds and hundreds of pages and it references hundreds of other documents. Um, so it, it, it's the amount of requirements for uh, for a building are, are massive, but it's it's not the same as the residential building code where it, it's prescriptive and it says, you know, thou shalt uh, put studs at 16 inches on center. It's like thou shalt come up with some kind of law system that can resist the wind loads for the area you're in. <laughs> Here's how thou shalt calculate these wind loads. Um, <laughs> there's not actually yeah, a lot well, of thou shalt. And it. It's funny because it gets to the, it gets, it's, it's, it's in that software territory again, where like email protocols are prescriptive. They're just like, Hey, do this and it'll work with any email client anywhere. And we don't care. Spin up all the email clients you want. But then if you want to build a medical records system, that's like, we're going to ingest a whole hospital's set of medical records. They don't really care how you do it. Just here's a bunch of rules you can't break. Right. Like, and that's it. it similarly, it, they're, they're problems of scale in funny ways, because we certainly have, you know, a shitload of houses in our country. Uh, but you know, and we need a lot of houses, but they, but they have to be put up in this sort of decentralized way. It has to be like, well, here's the rules, but just go build the houses. Cause the only way we're going to cover the volume that we need for people to all have houses. Right. There, there's we no way we can that. engineer every house and you can't have an right. architect and an engineer and mechanical, electrical plumbing engineers working on every single house. It just doesn't work like that. But then on the other side, they say, but if you're going to have a thousand people in this building every day for work. That needs to be engineered because so, if that whole thing collapses, that's going to be a thousand people at once. So that's sort of <laughs> an interesting uh, concept too when you think about the the risk of it because the building code takes that into effect. I mean, when I design a hospital, for example, there's uh, there's higher importance factors on it, right? Because if if all hell breaks loose, what's the one building that can't fall down, right? It, it's a hospital, it's police stations, um, so there's certain critical facilities that are designed with uh essentially a higher factor of safety and then <laughs> the other thing that i find interesting about the building code there's um so there's a couple different categories of buildings for how Im important they are there's the lowest level which is humans will not even occupy it so that could be like 
you know, a barn or something. And it basically has like a, a reverse factor of safety. That's like, you know what? We don't actually need to like fully design this thing to not fall because it's okay if it falls. And there's like the normal building that's like, okay, importance factor 1.0. Then there's a one bump up, which I'll talk about in a minute. And then the highest level would be essential facilities. So hospitals is the easiest example. But that one level up that I mentioned um, is things like schools where you're going to have lots of children. And, you know, that's a big disaster if a school falls and lots of children die. But what I find sort of fascinating about it is you. So there's all these descriptions of buildings that fall into that category. And I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but if it's an elementary school, it's something like if 250 students can be in the same place, then, um, you know, it, it bumps you into that category. If it's higher education, I think it takes like 500 students maybe to bump you to that level. So we're basically mm -hmm. saying uh, the younger the kids are, we're putting more priority on it because that's, uh, it, I mean, I mean, that's just yeah. a worse disaster. That's harder for us to digest to have. Uh, young children killed um, in a in a building collapse. So as the children are younger, we we bump up this importance factor. If, so I guess an easier way to summarize that: if you have a building where 250 children can gather in the same place, then that building gets a higher importance factor. If you have a building where 250 adults can <laughs> gather in the same place. That's so interesting. Really cares. I've never heard that before. Yeah. So, so I was at a conference recently where uh, one of the speakers was essentially, he was given a pitch for why structural engineers aren't, aren't given their due. And uh, he compared us to doctors and he said, you know, Everybody makes a big deal about it when a doctor saves a single patient. <laughs> every time the wind blows, we save thousands of people by our buildings not collapsing. And yeah, I mean, the reality is buildings are always trying to fall down. And the fact that they mostly don't uh, means engineers are typically doing a pretty good job. <laughs> You're right. Like literally every millisecond, gravity is trying to pull this structure into the ground. Gravity, Never mind wind and the earthquakes. And <laughs> so, that's right. like, uh, so we kind of like we laugh at it in when we're talking about the standards and everything. But like, it's a very real thing that like we have humanity has the problem so well dialed in the buildings don't really collapse anymore. And we build them progressively, ridiculously taller and they still don't collapse. But like the 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 idea that we, you know, engineering and science and all those things got us to this point where we're just sort of like, oh, yeah, like buildings don't fall down that we've also forgotten the part that you I think just you introduced when you were talking about this the ratings standards which i never knew about but it's very like it completely makes sense it's a thing that people completely don't think about but it's this very like there's sort of is someone there or a body or a group or somebody is making the decision of like okay well the kids matter more and then this quantity of people matters more and we're having this like on the software in the software, there are other places in the world of, of technology where we're starting to have this conversation because of weird things like self-driving cars. And I wonder if the engineer <laughs> reaction is like, guys, 
we've been through this before. You just don't even think about it anymore because you just think of them as, you know, as, as ratings for how, you know, how structurally secure a building or a bridge needs to be. But every bridge we're deciding, well, how many cars can be on this at once without it collapsing? Right. And, and you're on the back side of that. You're the kind of the, the unspoken decision there is if it collapses, <laughs> how many people is it okay that die <laughs> and their ages? Right. <laughs> like that's terrifying. <laughs> and then also oddly like utilitarian in this way that it's funny. Cause with a car, we're like, well, should, should the car run over the 10 people or the one murderer or the, you know, like weird trolley problem yeah, things. The, the ethics of self-driving cars is fascinating. <laughs> uh, I mean, the ethics of engineering ratings yeah. is like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, uh, you were talking about, uh, like a, 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 an overpass that collapsed in Florida, I think. So it was a, it was a bridge. Um, for a university and I forget which university this was about a year ago ish and the bridge was built off well not off site but immediately adjacent to where it was going to be and then it was like sort of craned into place and um, they had opened up the roadway beneath the bridge and um I'm not sure if it's been finalized yet, if they've you know determined how this bridge collapsed, but it collapsed with several cars underneath it and it killed a bunch of people. I mean, it was, it was a horrible situation. And, um, you know, fortunately those instances are very rare in structural engineering, but it does happen. And it was interesting to me that immediately after that happened, there were, you know, a lot of people saying, well, who designed this bridge? You know, who's this engineer? Let's throw this guy in jail for killing people. And it's like, wow. Um, you know, unfortunately people do make mistakes and it's unlikely that it was gross negligence, right? Like, like it's rare that an engineer is just like, well, you know what? I don't actually know how to design a bridge, but I, I'm just going to pretend I do and put something on the drawings because, you know, because I don't have a better alternative. You, you know, that math is hard. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> Uh, you know, that catches up to you, uh, a few months later and you know, the, the, it's not good when that happens. So I I think that's unlikely. I I think probably what happened is somebody made a mistake. We don't know if it was the engineer or the contractor or any number of other people. Um, and it's an unfortunate situation for sure, but I just found it interesting that, uh, there were several loud voices immediately jumping to the conclusion of, you know, throw this guy in jail. And, um, well, it's an interesting contrast to doctoring where people die all the yeah, time. We don't, uh, just go, well, they were sick, but necessarily right. regularly yeah. associate engineering with saving lives or with, or protecting lives, maybe m- more broadly. Um, but in almost all disciplines, uh, that's precisely why we have engineers, right? We had these really complex things that were difficult to figure out and understand and design and build. And now we have these wildly complex uh, topics that people spend sometimes decades <laughs> studying uh, to become experts at so that they can build a bridge or build an airplane or build a car uh, and make them increasingly safe over time and, and repeatedly safe. 
uh, it is, it's a really, uh, it's a pretty, it's a noble discipline, right? I mean, buildings are so important cars and way, the ways we get around the way things work, uh, yeah, make life possible. Um, so thank you for keeping us all safe. <laughs> and I feel like the whoa dude thing I immediately wanted to say, but then I was like, yeah, this is probably not productive, but then I'm going to say it anyway, is like the, the funny part of how regular, how we're able to do that stuff and how much we're able to trust the things that are like, well, I don't need to recalculate that because we already figured out the standard has to do with like, I guess another way of saying it is all that shit is, would be different on the moon or on Mars, right? Like we go to Mars, we have to re engineer how we build everything because gravity is different. Right. So there's this weird part where a lot of this has to do with these constants where I think you said it before we were talking, you know, this idea of like the fun thing about physics is I can do a bunch of math and on paper and then I can go, okay, yeah, this thing will work because the rules don't change. Right. Which is part of relates to the medical thing, which is just like the rules are so much squishier <laughs> in medicine that you're just like, oh, couldn't do it. But we tried with the best that we had. Right. Whereas engineering is based on this sort of concrete science of <laughs> physics where it's so dialed in that we can build this physics is right yeah <laughs> like <laughs> and 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 medicine is like trying its best but yeah i think we think yeah. this is what how it works you know mostly uh and then even then it's like well that's yeah this always kills microbes except the ones it doesn't kill and now we have a problem yeah. so how much does well let's let's introduce the I want to talk about how much the engineering knowledge that you have influences the adventuring and stuff. Cause we, we talked a bit about climbing and I've done some climbing and I was always like, as a gadget person, I was more interested, I think in the gadgetry that you get to play with when you do yeah, it's, advanced it's climbing than the climbing itself, <laughs> uh-huh. which is why I don't so it's still true climb. Engineering. But first, let's back up to the the thing I was saying before, which is like the legit adventuring, not just like, oh, that was an adventure. Like like the way they say, you know, in L.A., people say, oh, let's go for a hike. And the part of me that once <laughs> contemplated through hiking hill, the Appalachian Trail is like, you mean a walk? <laughs> like, a hilly walk. Yeah, a walk. It's like, oh, my shoes will get dirty. What's this? Oh, what's yeah, this the cave? Is, this is one of my favorite uh, stories. And give, I tell it all the time. And I give you credit, but I definitely at this point make up pretty much everything. So <laughs> I need a refresher. Okay. So <laughs> the cave, I guess to fully tell the story, I should explain that in 2013, I quit my job for about a year uh, to travel, mostly road tripped around the US, climbing at like all the places I'd always wanted to climb. Also spent a little bit of time in South America. Um, but <laughs> probably a month before I quit my job, like I already knew I was going to, I was planning it out, uh, hadn't told my work yet, but was getting ready to do it. And a buddy of mine at work, uh, all of a sudden turns to me one day and he's like, uh, he's like, Hey McCarty, have you been, have you been to this place? Have you seen this? And I, I look and see this picture that he's got pulled up on his computer screen. And it's a National Geographic picture of a place called Fantastic Pit. And if you guys have a computer in front of you right now, you should just do a Google image search for Fantastic Pit and, and you'll get a picture. And um, or it's, it's Fantastic Pit in Ellison's Cave, if that helps. 
So my buddy pulls this picture out and he says, hey, have you been here? <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit, no, I have not, but I will go there now. And I was like, now that I know about it, like I'm going to find it and I'm going to go to it. So I pull it up and I'm like, oh, wow, this is in, it's in Georgia of all places. And so, I mean, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina right now. I uh, grew up in Alabama. So it's like not even very, very far away from me. Like in my head, as soon as That's I saw the picture, right. As soon as I saw the picture, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to fly to whatever country this is in and I'm going to do this. You know, I'm about to take a year off. So like now's the time to do it. But yeah, come to find out it's like five hour drive away or something. So I'm like, oh, well now obviously I'm going to do this. So, uh, Literally, like the next month when I quit my job, the very first weekend, like the very first thing I did when I quit my job that kicked off this road trip was uh, drive down to this place in Georgia, had a bunch of uh, climbing friends here in North Carolina come with me. And um, so I'd never done any caving before. And but, you know, we all kind of figured, look, we're rock climbers. We know how to deal with ropes. Like, we understand this stuff. Like, it shouldn't be that hard. We'll figure it out. <laughs> it's just the mountain that goes downward. Yeah, that's right. One over I mean, mountain. That's, that's all the pit is. It's the same thing, right? It's, it's an it's inverted mountain. It's just right. thing. So <laughs> the other thing is I started trying to find online how to get to this thing. And cavers are super, super secretive and protective of their caves. And actually sort of for good reason. I mean, number one, they don't want people getting in there and dying and then it like giving caving a bad reputation. And number two, there's, uh, there's access issues with, um, so that humans can spread, uh, it's called white nose syndrome, I think to bats and it kills bat populations. Um, and you can do that by going to multiple caves and like picking it up somewhere and then taking it in, into another cave. So there's like protocols you're supposed to follow to clean all your gear. Anyway, <laughs> I start trying. The reality is you can hide a cave. You can't hide a mountain. Yeah, that's right. It's there. <laughs> so I start trying to find information online about this cave and I, no one has posted like how to find it. Like I, I've seen the pictures of it. Right. And, and I know approximately where it is. I know where to park, but I don't know how to like hike to find this cave. And so I start asking all these, uh, there's these caving groups that like, like caving clubs essentially in different cities. And I start asking all these clubs like, Hey, I'm, you know, going to do this cave and everyone either doesn't reply at all or replies and says like, you know, Ellison's cave is for advanced cavers <laughs> only. Like I'm not telling you how to get there. And I'm like, like no one's telling, you know, like, I can't find this information. And I'm like, look, like we're climbers, we're going to figure it out. But you know, I do understand that uh, cavers are trying to be protective or whatever. So finally I send this email to a group and I, I'm typing out the email and I say, Hi, uh, I'm the leader of a climbing club in Raleigh. And then I'm like, yeah, that's true. There, there's like six of us going on this trip and I'm the leader of it. So yes, I'm the leader of a climbing club in Raleigh. We're headed down uh, to this cave near where you live. Um, I wanted to make sure we're following correct protocol for the white nose syndrome, for all our gear, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> oh, by the way, I've never been to this specific cave. Remind me exactly where the entrance is. And sure enough, this one person replies and uh, gives me this like long spiel about how it's for advanced cavers only. We trust that you know what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. And here is approximately the coordinates of the cave or whatever. 
So uh, I actually got there a day early than all my other friends because I was not working at this point and spent like a day hiking through the woods just to find it. I spent like several hours on like different trails and finally found the entrance of this cave. It's literally just like a, wow. there's, you, there's like a little Creek and then the Creek just like disappears into a tiny, what little a fun mystery to chase and, and all this the down. To the cave. That's awesome. So anyway, we've got our group of, I know, right? So we've got our group of <laughs> six rock climbers with no caving experience. We, we go into this, this hole in the ground and you basically follow this underground creek or river for i don't know maybe probably only like a quarter mile maybe felt like longer it's a relatively small passage there's bats all over the ceiling which is like kind of crazy um i guess they were just hibernating none of them were flying around and say, do they get grumpy if you like put a flashlight on we them definitely or? tried to not disturb them uh we certainly didn't <laughs> touch any of them but very often you had to like crouch down because the the roof of the cave is low and so you're crouching <laughs> down and you're like don't stand up too quick or you're gonna like headbutt a bunch of bats right so we're we go through this passageway and eventually come to the first place that you repel and it's i think the first one is maybe like 150 foot repel and it's kind of a standard rappel where you like feet on the, on the wall for the majority of it, like, you know, pretty simple or whatever. Keep going. You go up and over one smaller obstacle and then you finally get to fantastic pit and fantastic pit is a 600 foot or to be precise. I think it's 582 feet of a drop free hanging the whole way. And it's just a hole, right? It's just a hole into the darkness. Now, the thing that I found. So you set an anchor at the top of that, right. jump off, and you're just hanging on your rope. You're hanging on your rope, free hanging the whole way down. Uh, I've obviously done a ton of rappelling, uh, rock climbing, like totally comfortable with it. But the darkness of being inside a cave is a darkness that I can barely cool. describe. I mean, obviously we had headlamps, but we'd occasionally turn them off just to sort of get a feel for it. And it was like, I mean, you can go in a closet in your house and turn off all the lights. And you may not think you can see, but you can still sort of see a little bit, like wow. kind of get an idea of where things are. When you're in a cave, you cannot see anything. It is the darkest dark I've ever experienced. So we're at the top of uh, a fantastic pit and we cracked a couple of um, like glow sticks and dropped them down this hole and like I'm sitting there watching them and a couple of the guys are further away from the edge. So I'm describing it and I'm like, they're falling, they're falling, they're still falling. Okay. I think maybe they're at the bottom now. And it was just like, I mean, it's just darkness. Like you look down and and it's just a, I mean, you can't see anything. And so, um, the, the first guy that went down is my buddy GW and he, he's, like my main rock climbing partner as well um, has a lot of rope experience while he was on the rope. The rest of us were sort of prepared for the worst case scenario of like, we need to pull him out. So this is sort of where like the engineering comes into it because I mean, we don't really know what to expect. I mean, certainly lots of other cavers have been down this thing before and everyone, well, mostly everyone has been <laughs> fine. So like, it, it should be fine, right? But like, we're not cavers. We've never done this. So we're just like, you know, let, let's make sure we're as safe as possible. So 
he's on a rope, which is tied to our anchor and he's starting to rappel. But we also have a system sort of pre-rigged so that in a worst case scenario, he's got a walkie talkie with him. If he gets partway down and is like, oh shit, like (laughs) this is bad. Get me out of here. We can rig up a pulley system and haul him out. And we have five of us, you know, aside from him. So that shouldn't be an issue. Um, now why in the world would he need to be hauled out? Well, part of the rappel or part of the interesting thing about this rappel is that about, uh, I would guess maybe like a hundred feet down, this waterfall comes shooting out of the side of the rock and, uh, it doesn't immediately hit you, but it's sort of like you're rappelling. And so so, well, obviously GW was the first one down, but I'll describe it now from my point of view. As I'm repelling, you're like, you're slowly spinning around because you have no control of that. It's free hanging. And your headlamp is just like, you know, tracking across the walls as you're spinning and you're just like sort of How wide like, is okay, it? there's like neat rock formations or whatever, but you can't reach out and touch any of it. You're totally free hanging. It varied quite a bit, but... Um, most okay. of the time the walls were at least like These pictures are absolutely 15 wild, feet away way. from you, especially maybe. National and Geographic one of like further. the layers. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, yes. National Geographic did a really good job with it. Our pictures look like shit because it was just totally dark down there. But anyway, uh, so as you're rappelling and you're like slowly spinning around, all of a sudden you see this water just like shooting out from the wall and you're like, Oh shit, I'm I'm about to get wet, right? And so the further down you go, the waterfall is sort of like it's a little bit beside you at first, but then as you go down further, you're just in it. And and you're I mean, you get soaking wet uh pretty quickly. Um we were there in March. So temperatures were pretty cold, but also cave temperatures are very stable, right? Cuz it's underground. Um so our concern was that perhaps GW was going to get halfway down this rappel and then all of a sudden be blasted by this waterfall. And if it was too cold, he could like very quickly get hypothermia and just be like, fuck this. I need to get out of here. And that's when we would haul him out if necessary. But anyway, uh, we don't hear anything from him. So we're just like, okay, I guess everything's going well. And then probably like five minutes later, we, uh, here on the radio, like, okay, I'm at the bottom. We're like, all right, sweet. And then, so we all one by one, uh, rappelled down and you know, the, the interesting thing about caving as compared to rock climbing, uh, rock climbing all, well, the hard work in rock climbing is getting to the top. Right. And then you either rappel back down or you walk off or whatever the case may be. Um, (laughs) In caving, it's exactly opposite. Like getting down there is pretty easy. Like, I mean, you know, anybody with some basic training can repel a free hanging rope, right? So we repel our 582 feet. We get to the bottom. We go explore for like a few minutes. (laughs) And then we're like, okay, uh, I guess now it's time for the hard work. Like now we have to get out of here. Wait, what's what's at the bottom? Obviously, the way out is to climb the rope back up. So at the bottom is, um, (laughs) I would describe it as like a little bit of a a pond where this waterfall lands. It's probably like uh, 12 inches deep worth of water. And and then we can sort of go back into different rooms. Um, I I have heard that 
this cave system actually has a separate entrance that's a few miles away. And so some of these experienced cavers will actually go as two different Whoa. teams and each team start on each end and rappel wow. down and then cross paths halfway and then climb up the other team's rope to get out, which would be, you know, amazing. Um, so we didn't have, uh, we didn't have two teams <laughs> or that much caving experience or any way of finding where that, where the opposite end was. So we sort of just like spent a few minutes walking around and then we're like, well, we don't want to get lost down here. Let's go back. Um, so then came the part where we have to climb out and, um, the way we do that was using equipment similar to what you'd use in rock climbing, especially like big wall climbing. If you're climbing El Capitan, for example. Um, so we use mechanical ascenders that grip the rope and then sort of like a fabric ladder that hangs down from that ascender. And so you, uh, you've got your hands on the ascenders and you move them up. Uh, one by one and then work your feet in the same pattern. So it's sort of um, the intent is it should sort of be like this running pattern of like right, left, right, left, moving up the rope. Now, what we learned through this experience is that cavers have some very specific (laughs) caving equipment that is much, much better at climbing ropes than what rock climbers use. Um, And I've seen videos of cavers doing it with their equipment and they are very, very fast at climbing a rope. We were very slow. Uh, It took a lot of work. Climbing a 600 foot rope um, is number one, it's pretty exhausting. Also, I should explain. So we were using a static rope, which is not supposed to stretch very much. Um, However, when it, free hangs 600 feet, it still has some amount of stretch. I mean, you can imagine even if the stretch is only uh, 5%, that would still be like 30 feet, right? So the first person on the rope, I, I should also back up and something say, really we cool did actually practice for this about. quite a bit. And, and one way we practiced was... Um, <laughs> So, so we rigged, all we did was we put an anchor in a tree and we had our rope going through that anchor, but like through a carabiner so that it could move. And we would have one person climbing one end of the rope and we'd have the other person essentially belaying on the opposite side of the rope, but letting (laughs) rope out while the one person climbed. So it it was, it was like a rope climbing treadmill. treadmill. That's exactly right. So even, even though the, um, you know, the anchor that we had in the tree was only 20 feet up. You could still climb 580 feet worth of rope just by doing this rope treadmill thing. What we did not count on is when you're, when we practiced on this rope treadmill, there wasn't much stretch in it because it, there was only, you know, maximum 40 feet of rope in the equation. But when the full rope is hanging all the way down the fantastic pit, it stretches quite a bit. So when you're initially trying to get on the rope, it's incredibly awkward because you, you know, you make a couple moves with these ascenders, moving them up, but your feet are sort of just still on the ground. And so your feet sort of keep falling out of the like uh, fabric ladder thing that you're using. And so oh, you, wow. basically like your first 
you know, 20 moves or so are basically just pulling rope stretch out. So you're just like sitting there sort of in this little pond at the bottom. And I mean, to, that's right. Yeah. And and, I mean, to set the picture a little bit, it's, (laughs) you've got, you've got a waterfall that's falling 500 feet or so. And it's just like (laughs) crashing down in this lake in a cave and everything's dark and it's really loud because the water falling is just like crashing and echoing. So like you can't hear each other. We're like sort of yelling at each other. And, and so like the first person is trying to climb the rope while the rest of us are sort of like hidden off to the side because we don't want to be like in the <laughs> waterfall. And so we watch our, our poor buddy Ryan is up there trying to get started on this thing. And we're just like, what the hell is he doing? You know, why is it taking so long? Like not really realizing that poor Ryan is like, he's, first he's pulling all the rope stretch out. And then once you finally get to the point of being able to like, it's finally about to take your weight now you're in this awkward place where like you make a move that gets you off the ground <laughs> but then the once the rope feels your full weight it like dumps you back in the little pond and it's sort of just like <laughs> you're kind of just like bobbing right so you're just like bobbing in this pond and you keep hitting the ground which means your feet keep coming out of the ladders and eventually you get going right but so it takes a long time to do that um I realized also I, I misspoke when I said there were six of us. There were originally supposed to be six and one ended up not being able to come. So there were five of us and we decided to climb the rope two at a time. But any more than that would have just sort of been unreasonable with like too much movement on the rope. Not to mention like, <laughs> you know, there is wow it, the anchor is plenty, plenty strong. But like, let's not test it with five people oh on a rope. Right? So we went we went two at a time. And I volunteered to go last because this whole thing was my idea. So climbing the rope ended up taking about two hours per pair of people. Probably, well, maybe an hour and a half more realistically. (laughs) So I spent three hours just sitting there in the dark, an hour and a half totally by myself, like turn my headlamp off to conserve battery. And I'm just sitting there in the dark. And the, one of the craziest things was the guys that went first had the radio and I had kept the radio, the other radio. And so we got the two guys in the middle that are going. <laughs> and after they've been at it for like 45 minutes, I'm like, damn, this is taking forever. I'm really bored down here. This is freaky. I'm like a half mile underground, you know, like it just felt so wild. And so I, I turned the radio on and called back up the top and I'm like, Hey, I, you know, I, I can't see them. Are, are they almost done? And then they radio back and they say, I don't know. We can't see them either. <laughs> and I'm just like, holy shit. Like it's <laughs> like, it's that big and it's that dark that these guys are like halfway up the rope somewhere. And I, I can't tell where they are. And the guys at the top also can't tell where they are, but eventually they get to the top and it's my turn to go. And, oh man, it was so exhausting climbing that bouncy rope. Um, normally when you're climbing a rope in rock climbing, which, uh, a lot of you are probably even wondering, why would you climb a rope in rock climbing? Aren't you climbing the rock? And yes, typically you are, but there are some situations in big wall climbing where you are climbing the rope. However, normally when you're doing that, the rock is like, you're touching Like you, you can potentially have your feet on the rock and you're usually only going like a hundred feet at a time. Um, it just feels a lot easier climbing 600 feet through a waterfall, mind you, like you're being like rained on this whole time that you're climbing this rope. Uh, it was super exhausting. And there were several times 
like towards the top where I was kind of getting like exit fever and like wanting to go faster. And then you just get so exhausted that you're like, no, I just got like, go slow, take your time. Like it's going to take an hour. That's just like, just deal with it. And so eventually we get to the top, pull the whole rope up, which at this point is super heavy because it's waterlogged. Um, and then we still have to hike back out to the uh, first rappel that we did. And obviously we'd left a rope there too. Oh man. Um, climb up that rope, which at this point I'm carrying the 600 foot waterlogged rope <laughs> for the second climb that we did. Um, so that was, that was also, you know, fairly exhausting. we get to the top of that. And then we start, you know, doing the last little bit walking wow. out. Um, and at this point we had been underground for like 10 hours, I think. I mean, it, it's a long day to get down there and then to get back out. Um, especially when you're having to take turns climbing the 600 foot rope, which is the longest part of it. Um, and so at this point we're soaking wet, we're pretty tired and we're just like, I cannot wait to get out of this cave. And so at the very last little bit, you see a little bit of light coming through the hole and you're like, all right, finally, <laughs> like we're here you know, we turn off our headlamps and like bust through the hole and it's raining outside. <laughs> we're just like, Oh my God, like, this is terrible. Uh, and it was like, well, I'm sure that also made the waterfall worse. Yeah, probably the, so. Right. Um, in the cave. Right. But yeah, I mean, it was an amazing day. I think at the end of it, we were all like, okay, we don't ever need to do that again. Uh, but it was just a huge, huge adventure. It was a, I mean, so it was a I can't fun. believe you didn't uh, get more scared at the bottom of the cave. I would have lost my mind imagining monsters and demons coming up from the depths of the earth. <laughs> It's, I mean, it was a pretty wild feeling to be down there for sure. I mean, when if you just think about the path that we took going horizontal and then down mm. and then horizontal and down again, like by the time you're down there, like, I mean, you are way, way, way under this mountain. And to be down there with like none of your friends are within sight wow. at this point and like to turn off your headlamp. And <laughs> mind you, we had all brought like, I think we had like three headlamps each because I mean, you're, the light is your absolute yeah. life down there right like i mean if you ran out of headlamp battery like you are sol so we all have like multiple lights but still when i'm sitting down there with the headlamp off just like waiting on those other guys to finish it was just like i mean I, yeah it, it, it's wild being that far Jeez. underground for sure and 600 feet is like a 50 story building so then uh man, yeah that's huge yeah, i guess that's right so to, so then to the question that started the whole thing like to what extent do you, if you didn't understand that, you know, you have this certain type of rope, that rope is rated for a certain weight and a certain, you know, physical behavior, you put in this anchor, you have an idea of the max load that that anchor will take. Like, yeah, you know, the idea that people do that without the knowledge of engineering that you have is even crazier. Yeah. People are just like, well, I got this rope. I, I mean, <laughs> I guess I'm going to go in this hole. I mean, yeah, I, I would agree. For me, when I first started getting into rock climbing, uh, it felt very scary, which is obviously a natural reaction to it. And I spent a lot of time just researching and understanding the gear involved and the forces involved. And I mean, once I know that, like, if I'm standing at the top of a cliff without a rope on, I am pretty darn scared. But like, as soon as I'm roped into a system and I know I've done everything correctly, 
I feel far more confident about it. And I certainly enjoy climbing with other people who uh, also understand the systems and the gear involved and the forces it can take and, you know, all that good stuff. And, and it applied to this cave as well. I mean, we had a good group of guys that were all pretty capable. And I knew that in a, you know, if there's a situation where imagine somebody breaks an arm at the bottom, um, we could have hauled them out of there and it would have been a ton of work, but if we needed to, we were prepared to do that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a crazy feeling to be uh, free hanging on a rope um, way up in the air. And, And I guess, Maybe it's scarier rock climbing than it is caving. I mean, caving, you just can't see the bottom. Like for all you know, if you fall, you're just going to fall forever. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it it certainly helps to understand like, like, hey, this rope is engineered for this purpose and there's no way it's going to break in this application. Well, and I think this, this it's a, a good place to kind of start wrapping up because it comes back around to this kind of engineering, like, the thing we're always chasing, which is this overlap of like this concrete physics based engineering thing. And then this other part, that's just this squishy human in this case, batshit crazy, literally batshit. Cause the part of the, the part of the, the part of the horizontal parts of the cave that you left out is you're also crawling through batshit. Yeah. yeah I suppose there's there a little bit of guano. And, headbutt bats and there's, yeah. So, it's like the intersection of these two things, the engineering, the understanding how the things work so that you can build systems to do these crazy things and the willingness to do that crazy stuff is like how we get to the moon, right? Like you have to have a subset of people that I really like understanding things. I've increasingly realized over the years that I don't have the balls to do, to use them to do crazy stuff uh, beyond like, biking at an unreasonably <laughs> fast uh, speed. Riding my bicycle. That sounds far more dangerous um, than climbing a rope in a cave. Riding your bicycle. Way. Yeah, it's probably true. But, <laughs> but also, you know, like, to an extent, my awareness of how the brakes work and their threshold and the, you know, like I, I have my own engineering understanding that makes me feel like, okay, the only thing I need to avoid is hitting people. Right. Um, so, but it's like, it, if you don't, have that the engineering allows us to do crazy things but then you still have to have that sort of you know thing that you that you have that i don't that i respect greatly which greatly that's not that's an adverb uh you have the thing that i don't that i have great respect for (laughs) which is like that you're like oh this rope will hold me i'm gonna use it to do some crazy shit like that's yeah for sure Right. It's nice to have trust in that stuff. I remember the uh, the I, the time we went climbing in Carolinas together was there was just there was an extra level of comfort that I had because uh, I really trust you as an engineer, and so I just knew I was there was I it wasn't conscious there was just something I was like I just feel. I just know things are going to be okay here because I know that you've like thought through this, you've checked everything, and I'm I'm not the kind of person who can go. <laughs> I would rather go on a roller coaster that I built, which I know is unreasonable because that's way less safe than go on a roller coaster right. that someone else built, who's built like a professional it, right? roller coaster builder. But because I don't know them, I don't trust them. But I just I felt right, and and it was uh it was a totally different experience for me to uh to just 
have that trust in like the kind of the science of it, right? The the trust and understanding what is really going on and what what can I let loose of my like human reaction to this to trust uh, in this long, cool, well, uh, yeah. centuries long pursuit of that. understanding all <laughs> this stuff. Brief little record, yeah, and yeah, man, thanks for thanks for <laughs> thanks for coming on to talk about this stuff. But also thanks for thanks for doing what you do professionally, so buildings don't fall down. And thank you for pushing the envelope on the other crazy shit so that we can continue to be in awe of it. Absolutely. As I think that's a pretty <laughs> vital part of the human experience as well. And thanks to our supporters <laughs> who throw us as little as a bucket episode to keep this thing going. I'm so proud of that segue right now. Uh, if you want to help out and throw us as little <laughs> as a buck a month, I think I said an episode earlier, we have changed the pricing structure. Now it's only a month. It's easier to do the billing that way. Uh, go to support.zengineeringpodcast.com or follow the link in the description. But uh, thanks for thanks for hanging out, man. Thank you, guys. It was fun. This is great. Absolutely. Yeah, this was great. I, lo- I love that story. Thanks for telling it. <laughs> this is Zengineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. I'm Dave. Take it easy, everybody. Word. Oh, let me do that again. Hang loose, everybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs>